0: Hello and welcome back to CartoonLunch.com. My name is Antoine Gilbo, and today this is the second part of my conversation with Jay Lander. In the first part, uh, Jay explained to us how he started in animation. I think the the last thing he was talking about was uh, his experience being a writer, storyboard artist on SpongeBob SquarePants. So he's going to keep talking about that for a little bit and then we'll see what uh, Jay did later. Um, we met again in 2007 when I was working on Phineas and Ferb as a writer, storyboard, and Jay was uh, a director, animation director. So he's going to talk about we're going to talk about this uh, SpongeBob Phineas and Ferb and what Jay's been doing since. So here it is, Mr. Jay Lander.
1: There was one episode I had to do called the Fry Cook Games. It was a show with Dan, and there's a very strange section at the beginning of this where Mr. Krabs is running SpongeBob in the local Olympics and Plankton comes in and he's going to run Patrick against SpongeBob in the Olympics. And there's this amazing sequence where the two bosses are trying to get their employees fired up to go out there and compete, and they're best friends. And we cut back and forth from Krabs to Patrick to SpongeBob to Plankton One line at a time, boom, 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 dialogue, until eventually it's literally one word from each of them Uh as we cut back and (laughs) forth. And I'm pitching this in four voices at full speed in front of a room full of people. And I don't remember a second of that or any other pitch, but when it was over, people came up to me, they are like, you were possessed. That was amazing, <laughs> and I wish there were footage of it because I yeah. have no memory of any of that stuff. But anyway, it was three years on oh, that show years. of oh, okay. high power. But is it like two seasons, three seasons? Two seasons? It, it was three. It was three seasons before the the hiatus in the movie, yeah. and I did not go back. I didn't come back for the uh, for the movie, and yeah. I have not
0: been back since. Oh, yeah. So they, they shut down kind of production for after they before did. the movie. Yeah. And they did the movie and then long time after they started again, right? Um,
1: I, it was a couple of years, <clears> I <throat> yeah. think, but I was so far out of the loop, I, I had mm-hmm. no idea.
0: I, I think. So at, when was that? When did you end? When was the was last? It 2001. 2001. Oh, yeah. Was that's, right after the towers fell. Yeah, me too. That, um, that's when I, I left uh, Nickelodeon, 2001. A lot of people... The uh, not call back after no, 2000. we we
1: had you know, there was uh, quite a bit of stuff going on. I mean, for mm. one thing, Steve had done three years, and when you figure in the pilot, um, it's mm. four and a half, five years probably of his life dealing with SpongeBob. It's a brutal, brutal schedule. as as much as I mm. brag that you know, we're working until two o'clock in the morning and I, I was working weekends the mm. day before I had to deliver a show, all of which is true. Like, crazy hours. I, You know, you'd work until the sun came up, whatever it took. I'm going to stop because this male person is going to oh, slam okay. my mail. No, it's it's the loudest sound on earth. Oh, yeah. If they close it. Well, that's, that'll be fun to hear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's coming.
1: She didn't close it. She knows we're recording. <laughs> yeah. So as much as I complain that, you know, I worked those insane yeah. hours... What Steve Hillenburg would have been doing is...
0: I noticed most people were single on that show.
1: That's probably true. I got married and then later divorced.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Most people were single because you can't have kids and you're raising young kids and stuff. People were in their late 20s, 30s on that show. Yeah, and and were they taking advantage of
1: us? And by they, I mean Nickelodeon? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's what they do. Did we enjoy what we were doing? also absolutely. So we'd been doing that for three years. Steve's wife had been ill. Mm -hmm. Um, It was time for a break. And when uh, around that time, around 2001, I and a couple of the other writers in the studio tried to bring the Writers Guild of America in to get us residuals on the work that we were doing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that animation writers, at least outside of um, the Simpsons daytime, and other Daytime. It's daytime animation. Well, they call prime it... Primetime, they get residuals. The primetime is well,
0: different,
1: right? Prime t- it, some primetime shows <clears throat> get residuals. So mm-hmm. The Simpsons and Family Guy, those guys get residuals. Uh, and when I say guys, I, I use it in a completely non-gendered yes, way. Yes, yes, um, yes. They, they get residuals because each of those individual shows has fought for residuals because all of these shows are produced by independent production companies Mm -hmm. that insulate the parent company from union deals. Ah. So they fight for it one show at a time, and they get it one show at a time. SpongeBob, they call daytime television, and they say, we don't cover daytime television. The Writers Guild. Uh, No, the Writers Guild will be happy to do it, but they don't have a deal for it. But that said, every episode of SpongeBob that I ever worked on premiered in prime time. So it's not really a daytime show. They just call it that Uh because it stops the discussion about union stuff. So we tried to bring the the union in, and there was much ugliness. Um, And this was all happening around the time the show was going to wind down. And there was actually a moment um, at Nickelodeon Studio when there were more executives in the building than there were artists mm-hmm. working on mm-hmm. the shows. I mean, it sounds like a joke, but it's not. Because any opportunity that came up to shuffle people out, they would do it. So when Steve wanted to shut down the show, they were happy to let that happen. Because that gets ten writers who signed union cards out of the, out of the building. Mm-hmm. And Jonan Vasquez's show, Invader Zim, was killed in the middle of an order of episodes. Because he was the showrunner who had stepped across the line to sign a union card, and they said, you know what, let's Mm -hmm. kill this show, get him out of the building and all of his writers, and then we don't have to worry about that union thing. And it was unfortunate, and it was ugly, and it impacted my career for many years afterward. Um, But that's kind of the way that went. And I think, you know, Steve decided...
0: Why your your career? What was your...
1: Well, you know, they closed right. down a lot of shows and moved a lot of people out of there to clear out the bad apples. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of <clears throat> King Apple. I was not the the only guy. I, I wouldn't say I was the ringleader. I, I feel like it was very much a group mm-hmm. effort. But I was out there shaking a picket sign and having supervised meetings with management and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I made myself a target and word was spread around town that it was not cool to work with me or hire me. And, you know, I, I hear about that stuff secondhand Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. no one is going to tell me, yeah, I'm not hiring you for this reason, but it was out there and, and it was unfortunate. And I would love to get Those years back, I would love to be able to do work or be able to have done work. But I've never regretted fighting for something that I I feel is really right. Mm -hmm. Um, The amount of money that we made for the channel that we worked for is unbelievable. I mean, you cannot even begin to imagine. When when we sat down with the WGA people, they said to us, "Uh, do you have any idea how much money your show makes? And I said, no. And they said, well, why don't we tell you what Nickelodeon charges for a commercial on a a new airing of SpongeBob? Mm -hmm. And they told me the number. And I did the math in my head going uh, on the budget that I understood we had for the show. And I realized this show that I've been working on is into profits by the middle of the second commercial break in the first airing. Why are we not getting the residuals that people who write shows Mm -hmm. like Friends get when their show costs them $10 million per episode and it may take them 10 years to make their money back Mm -hmm. on that show? Mm -hmm. I mean, they could have given us a little something and it's couch cushion money to them. They would never have noticed. But they fought it because, you know, we were the camel's nose under the tent and they didn't want to have a union studio. I can say with some pride... That Nickelodeon is a union studio right now. They're they're
0: uh, so it was not at all even in the animation. It was guild? not
1: the the animation guild was not there. But happened, the animation guild doesn't give writers. They don't. They could. They could <clears throat> fight for procedural. that. Yeah. That's not a fight that they have no. chosen to take on yet. And I hope that they will at some point. I know that they would get the support of other unions if they were mm-hmm. going to do that. But what happened was when the WGA went in. We partnered with IATSE 839, which is the animation guild. And we said, let's all go in together. We'll all fight and pick it together. You'll get the Teamsters to support our action Mm -hmm. elsewhere because they're affiliated with IATSE. We'll unionize the studio. The WGA will take the writers. And you guys at the 839 will get everybody else. And they said, that's a great idea. And this is back in George Bush, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Jr. Bush. or oh, they junior. Uh, Second
0: yeah. Second Bush. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Sorry. his time. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's right. 2000. So yeah, that's right. So
1: it's his time, and it's not a friendly National Labor Relations Board. It's a Republican National Labor Relations mm-hmm. Board. So what happened was, once we started getting into it with Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon started some actions at the NLRB, and they got slow-walked because Bush's administration mm-hmm. doesn't want new union deals. And when they got slow-walked, the WGA lost interest a little bit. They had some managerial problems there. And then the 839 realized they had an opportunity. And I almost don't blame them for taking it. They went to Nickelodeon and said, Hey, how would you like us to protect you from the WGA? And Nickelodeon said, Why, we would like that very much. So they signed a deal with IATSE 839 with, I think, the sort of understanding that there would be no residuals, Mm -hmm. because that was not something that 839 did. So in a way, I unionized Nickelodeon, just not with the union (laughs) that I wanted to bring in. Um, And then I was in the wilderness for seven years, because there was no work for me in animation. Mm -hmm. So I ended up falling into video games. And How did
0: you get into that? Well, Micah, you must have been into video games. You like video
1: games. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I love video games. And, and we were into this sort of CD-ROM era and and high storage capacity era mm-hmm. of video games where suddenly they're doing cinematic um, yeah. pieces that go along with the video game and help tell the story. Oh, yeah, and, at the beginning of, uh, yeah. And storytelling was an issue. And, and storytelling was what I was into. That was the storyboarding I was doing and, and comic books I was working in. Less interested in the details, more interested in the overall. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Micah Wright, who had been a friend of mine at Nickelodeon and who had his own pilot and was about to get a show at Nickelodeon Mm -hmm. when the union thing came up, he was also in the wilderness. And as the first guy out, he kind of bushwhacked the path into comic books and then video games. And I called up Micah and I'm like, what are we going to do? We don't Mm -hmm. have jobs. And he said, how about this video game stuff I'm doing? And we hooked up with Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment because we're cartoon guys and they're making video games based on cartoon properties. Uh And that got us into that world and we ended up doing all kinds of really cool video game stuff at a time when they were getting into storytelling. They did, you know, grudgingly, they didn't want to do that. They all felt like, what does this matter? Who cares why you're doing it? Just run down the hall and shoot zombies. And we were like, no, you need to give yourselves, mm-hmm. give your players a reason to want to do this because everyone else has them running mm-hmm. down the halls shooting zombies too. And we did about you know eight years of that, right. and then did and you have your own company or were you just working for? No, for we, a company. we worked freelance. We, yeah. I, you know, I, I wrote Dukes of Hazard. I wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I finally got to write Bugs Bunny.
0: What do you mean? For, as games? As
1: games. Ah. So they would do a movie, and then they would say, who's going to write the movie tie-in? And we would get that job. So I, I, actually, it was before there was a Dukes of Hazzard movie, they made this video game. It was farmed out to a company in Australia, and they made a rally racing video game. So there's a lot of drift in the cars. And you have to start turning a quarter of a mile before you actually hit the corner. And this was not a popular gameplay style in the United States at the time. And But you know, no one knew who the Dukes of Hazard were. Uh-huh. So they farmed it out to this Australian company, and they made this game in a European style. And then they walked into um, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment and said, we're done with our game. Here it is. And Warner Brothers is like, wait, what? what's the story of the game? There's no story. And the Australians were like, what do you mean story? <laughs> and Border said, well, we can't have this game come out. There was literally no story. It's just you are the General Lee car you and you have to around. go from A to Z. Yeah. And then in for level no reason. F- no reason, no voices, nothing. And then in level four, you're a black Charger. You're a Dodge Charger <laughs> for no reason. And Warner Brothers said, oh, my God, we, we think we're going to do a Dukes of Hazard movie in a year. And you guys are going to come out and tank the franchise before we get this movie uh-huh. out. We need someone to do something. So they brought Micah and me in and said, here's this game. Make a story for it. And the Australians, you know, they got their backs yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. They're like, well, the game is Golden Master. We're not changing anything about the game. These are the levels. This is the order. This is what happens. So we had to invent a story. Around, uh, around fits, that. Around that. fits the game. Yeah, I and mean, it was like, it was ironclad. Every detail mm. was ironclad. And it was an interesting challenge, and it was fun. So we wrote a story that actually worked with that. And then I storyboarded all the cinematics mm. because I could. And then Tom Wopat and John Schneider and, oh, and they, all the original cast, really? except
0: from the, for... From the show.
1: Yeah, and uh, Denver Pyle had, had passed on, so they had... Um, Frank Welker, I think, double his Mm -hmm. voice. But I've got James Best reading my Roscoe (laughs) P. Coltrane dialogue. And it was really cool. And in the recording session, Tom Wopat's flipping through the script. And he says, Hey, this is as good as any of the episodes we did. (laughs) And Schneider said, Are you kidding? It's better. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) these are my heroes. I mean, it was really cool. I grew up on that. Uh I had the (laughs) lunchbox. And now I got to be a part of that. So it was kind of cool. We did cool video game stuff. But seven years into that, the economy went into the dumper. Mm -hmm. And it was getting Mm -hmm. really hard to find work for two people. Mm -hmm. And Dan Pavanmayer called me up. He had just made the storyboard for the pilot of Phineas and Ferb. And he called up a bunch of his friends and invited them over to Disney and said, I'm going to pitch this to you and give me your notes. So we went in there, he pitched the show, we all gave him his notes, and then a couple of months later, the show got picked up, and Dan called me up and said, Oh, I've got the show picked up. You <laughs> want to work on the show?
0: So you made notes? He changed it a little bit his board? We did. Incorporated so when, the notes when, I the there, when I got there,
1: when I got there, what he pitched to us was Phineas and Ferb and their friends make a roller coaster. And then Doof and and Perry duke it out, and then we go back to Phineas and Ferb for a button on the roller coaster story. Uh-huh. And I'm watching him pitch this, and I'm shaking my head. Something's wrong. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't figure it out. And and it was great. It was it was excellent. We all knew this was an amazing show. But when it was over, I said, Dan, here's my big idea for you. Right here, Doofenshmirtz Doofenshmirtz fights with Perry. He locks him up, and Perry's tied up, and Perry's about to flip this screw or whatever it was into the machine and screw everything up. Just have Perry see the screw and then grab all this, move it back here to the middle of the sequence with the kids making the roller coaster, and I showed him the intercut that would make these stories get to a high-tension point, mm-hmm. And then you switch. So the audience is like, what's happening yeah. in the other part of the story? And I'm sure that you and all of the other boarders would have cursed my name if you knew that it was my
0: fault. No, that was a template it's, for the show, basically. You yeah. keep going back and forth. Yeah,
1: it's, it, the, the intercut was... You know, I'm not going to say it's my idea. I did not invent mm. intercutting. It would be stupid to say that. But I applied it to the pilot, and I th- I think it was a good audition for Dan mm-hmm, for the show. So when the show got picked up, he called me up, and he said, you want to come work on the show? And like an idiot, I said, no, I hate yeah, animation. Yeah, you were not at the
0: beginning of yeah, the show.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want to be in animation anymore. They blacklisted me, blah, 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 blah. I'm in video games now. And... I walked away, and then because there was no work, months went by, a year went by, and I couldn't find anything to do in video games, and Dan called me up because there was an opening, and he said, I'm calling again just in case, and I was like, please take me, take me. So he brought me in, and I showed up at the beginning, I guess, of second season Mm -hmm. for Phineas and Ferb, and... It was, again, another new job, an expansion of what I do. So now I'm supervising, and I've got to deal with timers and designers and colorists, and I'm making animatics, which is the greatest part of the job, Mm -hmm. because the film is made in the editing room. It, less so for animation than than for live action, for sure, because mm-hmm. you're cutting yeah. as a storyboarder. You, you pick from different shots. Different uh, in animation, you
0: don't. You don't. Right,
1: um, <clears throat> but you know that's where you know what mm-hmm. you've made. You're putting sound and video and time together. The, the, you know the actual yeah, well, length of time. See if a joke works happen. or not. Right, mm-hmm. and and then because it doesn't work. You write a new joke, and you, mm-hmm. s- you quickly mm-hmm. do a new drawing, and you record some <coughs> new dialogue, you really feel like you're working with clay. I um, imagine
0: if they could do that in live action. No, no, we have to get the whole crew together, the
1: actors. We'll do that yeah, next year. Might be, well, we're getting there, though, and <laughs> yeah. with, with yeah. all of the computer CGI, animation yeah. and stuff that they're doing. It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was a, a big expansion of my skill set. Again, broader, not deeper.
0: Yeah, so, that's, that's the ultimate. Besides yeah. having your own show and running the whole thing. Right. That's the ultimate. You run every aspect of an episode.
1: Mm-hmm. And everyone who is storyboarding on the teams that I'm supervising does something about that job better than I ever could. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there, literally, there's no one on that crew who I look at and think boy, I wish I could make that person go away and replace them with someone else. <laughs> it's just about learning what everyone's strengths are mm-hmm. and, and playing to them. And then, if you're really good, helping them beef up the other things yeah, so yeah, that yeah. they're not pigeonholed mm-hmm. in one little area. Um, and, and I loved it. That was the coolest job ever. On the hardest show in the world to make, SpongeBob was a cakewalk.
0: Oh, really? Next I mean, to, uh...
1: Spongebob was difficult for me because I was green. Yeah. You know, it was the first time I had written. But, I mean, those characters are so well-defined, and there are so few of them. Mm-hmm. And early on for Spongebob, it's Spongebob and Patrick go to the moon. Mm-hmm. They're really big play fields mm-hmm. for you to work on. I feel terrible for the people who have to work on Spongebob now, who have to f- slot something between... SpongeBob and Patrick go to the moon and SpongeBob and Patrick go to Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's the new episode when you're 12 seasons in? Yeah, 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 I don't know. Yeah. Um, Phineas and Ferb got there much faster because Phineas and Ferb is is, comp- is, is figuring out three stories mm-hmm. for every 11 minute short. And they've got to work together and come together at the end and <laughs> you need to have a song <laughs> and there are twenty characters. It's that show is major. I mean, that, that's a big lift. I remember
0: them. some notes from, from some Disney people were like, "Oh, we haven't seen enough of so and so third character or something." Yeah. Note was like, "Well, that's that's not their episode. They're in the others. The fireside <laughs> girls—they're not in this one." Sorry. They, yeah, they wanted to they want be every episode in every show.
1: They wanted to feel like The Simpsons, mm-hmm. where you have a funny line and you have one of ten thousand characters. Like
0: Mission you, Impossible, where they're all in there all the time.
1: Yeah. Which <laughs> impossible. There's always someone on, on uh, The Simpsons who can lean in for a line. Whatever line it <laughs> is you come up with in your your gang-written room where you've got 40 writers, they can be like, oh, yeah, season mm-hmm. 12, the 13th episode, we had a character who was a vampire surgeon. We should have that guy come in and do it. It's like, that's not the kind of show that we were making on, on Phineas and Ferb. I think what was cool about that show is that it was all about creating this really rigid format um, and very specific jokes and then constantly upending your own format mm. and, and playing with it uh, constantly, you know, like weaving back through your own idea about what this show is, this very specific format, and finding ways to subvert it yeah. and still
0: keep it feeling yeah. like the show. Yeah, Such The a format weird idea. was very rigid. Um, again, like a Mission Impossible to me. That's the ultimate format show. Yeah, Mission Impossible. You know, like the exact same beginning in the same room. Yeah. Um,
1: we get the message. Cinnamon puts on a costume, goes huh? plays and plays roulette very while defined, Barney's in the elevator. Very shaft.
0: defined parts. You know, <laughs> characters don't. You know, Barney's not going to put on makeup.
1: No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> they wouldn't even do the episode where they flip that you know, like one episode where we're going to shake it up. Oh,
0: no, <laughs> no way. <laughs> Last season. I can imagine.
1: So that show though, Phineas and Ferb, it, it pushed me into that director area mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that supervisory area. So when that dried up
0: after four years, so then you're in an area where there are less jobs because there are not 10 supervisors per show. No. If you design, there's a bunch of... Some shows have eight... I just heard of a show where eight character designers on one show. Mm-hmm. If you're a supervisor or, or a director, two or three, you know, or...
1: They're, they're hard jobs to come by. I have mm-hmm. not come by
0: another one yeah. since,
1: and I don't know that I ever will because mm-hmm. I'm the old dude now, and yeah. things are different. You know, you never know why you don't get a job, but I know that I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so... I, I, f- I had to find, again, other things to do. And, mm. and strangely enough, Micah Wright, my writing partner, was also on the outside again. Mm. And he had hooked up with some people at the San Manuel Band of Native Americans yeah. Casino. He, he had met these people who have an enormous amount of money and were very <laughs> interested in making a movie. And they wanted to make a movie. And we said, we can do that. Sure, we'll figure out how to oh, make a live-action right. movie. Yeah. So <clears throat> we sat down and wrote a screenplay. So what
0: year was that that you started, actually started? That um, would have been... Seriously thinking about
1: that. T- well, uh, 20... Uh, 20... Yeah. yeah. Oh, my yeah, God, yeah. it's 20. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: 2013. Okay, okay. okay.
1: <clears throat> so we wrote the screenplay, and we went out and learned how to raise the funds for a movie... And so we, these
0: guys were not funding it? The people who had a lot of money? They were partially funding it, yeah. but
1: no one funds all of everything. Uh, Even uh, Spielberg doesn't fund all no, of his own no, movies. Yeah. Uh, you just never want to put all your eggs in one basket mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So, plus, I think it's a good gut check to see if you can find someone else in the world who believes yeah. in what you want yeah, to yeah. do. So we raised the money. I put some of my own money into it. And we uh, contracted with a production company in Romania. Mm-hmm. Which
0: is where we decided to film that, and we went overseas and we shot a movie. I mean, we. So the, f- c- the first people that Mike had met, did, did you tell? Did you pitch them an idea? At first, did, did he, they knew? He met them before I did. Did and they know what movie you wanted to make? Or
1: he had? We had some ideas from the past that were bigger action movies. Yeah, and pitched those things to them, and they were like, "We're not ready to spend quite that much <laughs> money." right now we've got x number of dollars Mm -hmm. we want to spend so hearing that number we said okay let's come up with a concept that can be made for that amount of money and will be cool and feel like us you Mm -hmm. know not like not like we're going out and making a movie because it's a popular genre or whatever although we sort of did that but we we uprooted that Mm -hmm. genre Mm -hmm. um There are all these found footage movies where it's first-person camera work, and Mm -hmm. the police have found this tape on the side of the road, and now we're going to watch how all of these people died. And we decided we wanted to make a movie in that first-person style, but that story-wise wasn't like that. So first thing we were going to do, uh, or at least production-wise, wasn't like that. The first thing we were going to do was make sure that the story happened to professional camera people. So we didn't have shaky cam all over the place mm-hmm. that was going to make our audience <laughs> that's, vomit. That's a great idea. <laughs> and it, it led us down this path where we came up with a story. If you've ever heard of uh, House Hunters yes. International. Uh-huh. So Antoine Gilbot is a, a famous animator from Los Angeles who's tired of the city life. We're moving him to rural <laughs> Moldova. And then they show you three houses, and you mm-hmm. pick a house. And after the commercial, we came back six months later to see what Antoine is doing. <laughs> and we decided our movie would be about that crew going back to Moldova mm-hmm. six months later to see what happened with this American lady who moved there.
0: Okay.
1: And they get back there, and the villagers, who were quaint and friendly and fun when they left six months ago are now surly and mean and weird. (laughs) And these are ugly Americans tromping around town because we're Americans and we can do what we want. And they piss off the neighbors and everything goes to hell and it becomes a bloodbath by the end of the movie. (laughs) But it's a bloodbath that's really funny and weird. Mm -hmm. And because of who Micah and I are, deals with ugly Americanism and voyeurism and selfie culture and the shallowness of a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it it is oddly a message movie. It's also in its way like a slasher movie, Mm -hmm. but we make you earn it. So if you need blood, you're going to get gallons of blood, but they come late. Mm -hmm. Because what we decided is, we didn't want you to watch this movie like you watch other slasher movies, where you you tune in and you say, "Oh, I can't wait to see how he's going to die." I can't wait to see how mm-hmm. she's going to die. We wanted our audience to say, "Oh, I hope he's not going to die." <laughs> and we think that's <clears throat> the movie that we made. I mean, it's one of the things we say about it is it's the only slasher movie you go to where you can name the characters when it's over. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're at least... You wanted def- people to care
0: about the characters.
1: They do. Yep. And in a way, our characters are assholes that maybe you don't care about, but you get to know them and understand them. Mm-hmm. Like they're real. Um, so it was it was a load of fun, and we went overseas. We shot it. We directed it. We came home. We edited it. We did looping for it. We did special effects supervision for it. We had to design posters it was the whole movie like a real movie. It, yeah. it was yeah. a real movie, yeah, yeah. but it was also homebrew mm. because we didn't have the dough that we needed to really finish things up and then mm. to promote it. We you know, we we did what we could and in the end we didn't get what we wanted out of it in terms of a boost in Hollywood mm. or a gigantic audience for it for a couple of reasons. We made some mistakes. We showed it to Um, distributors before it was ready Mm -hmm. because we were thinking we'll show it to them now and then they'll give us suggestions and they'll have a sense of ownership and they'll be behind it but it doesn't work like that they want Mm -hmm. to know it's done and all we have to do is stick it in a theater yeah and we didn't get that and the other thing was we partnered up with a, a little distribution company and they created an advertising campaign for us and an advertising strategy. And they said, what's your movie about? What is this movie? And we said, well, this is a movie with six characters. It's an ensemble. Three of them are women. They are liberated. This movie is about a home renovation. This movie is designed for women in their... 20s to their Mm -hmm. 40s and they said to us but it's a horror movie and we said well no it's really a workplace comedy that goes (laughs) terribly terribly (laughs) wrong but regardless of what you think it is this movie is for them we wrote it from the ground up for that audience
0: for women Mm -hmm.
1: and they just couldn't hear the message all they were thinking was
0: Blood, horror, men. Well, that's what sells, probably. That's
1: what usually sells. It's the least work that Mm. they could do. So they went out with us, and we interviewed for all of the horror websites and and that kind Mm. of thing. And it's fine. And eventually that audience understands what we did. And we have super diehard loyal fans. Mm-hmm but all of our diehard loyal fans who are all horror fans are also women from huh. 20 to 40 they're exactly the people that we talked about bringing this movie Some out people to. found
0: your movie the people you wanted to found it
1: found they it. they did they just found it at a time when mm-hmm. they could download a torrent and not pay for it <laughs> so in fact you know we came out with this movie on on a weekend And the following week, our distributor called us us up and said, you know, we've got good news and bad news. (laughs) Good news, 9 million people saw your movie. Bad news is 8,999,000 of them downloaded it from the internet um, for free. So, you know, it is what it is. It was a really cool learning experience Mm -hmm. and has helped me with other things. Mm -hmm. So while I haven't had an animated job yeah, out yeah, yeah. in the world at a studio. Um, last year I made a series of shorts called The Nine Lives of Claw, where mm-hmm. I was hired to run a production of these short films. We haven't placed them yet, but they're coming. And I got to do that same job that yeah. I did on Phineas yeah, yeah. and Ferb, but out of my kitchen. <clears throat> so storyboarding. It's and yeah. Also working with, with outside storyboarders mm-hmm. and outside designers. And we had an animation crew in Malaysia that was absolutely unbelievable. Um, and I don't know if I've discussed this with you yet. We had a completely different production process. So there, there are no sheet timers for this. And is this too esoteric for a podcast? No,
0: no, no, no. Anything you want to talk about. So yeah.
1: we make a show like Phineas and Ferb and you design it and you draw the storyboards and you record everything. You make the animatic here. And then we have people who do sheep timing, who mm-hmm. literally determine down to the frame exactly when every single thing happens in a show. How long the scene lasts, mm-hmm. how many frames between steps, if someone blinks, when and yeah. how long it takes. When I did this show, The Nine Lives of Claw, they're using a flash system or Harmony, one of those computer animated things. And they don't want cheat timers. They want their animators to make the mm-hmm. scenes. So when I storyboarded this, <laughs> I put in as many poses as I possibly
0: can. So the animators know when a character blinks? Well,
1: not... Not not that much? Not Unless it was an important
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just regular blinks,
1: not necessarily, not every step. Uh But I did a lot of posing on this stuff and uh, made up the animatics. And I told them, look, the animatic is your guide. Just animate on top of that. And Mm -hmm. they said, that's what we do. And they would animate. And then they would send me a draft of the completed show... Because there's no mm-hmm. there's not really any rough drawing. There's a little bit here and there, but most of the time they're completed yeah. assets that they have. And they would send it to me and I would give them frame by frame tweaks to do mm-hmm. for the second set of animation. We would do another iteration and I would get two or three bites at the apple every time zeroing in closer and closer on what everything should look it work? like. It worked? It totally yeah. worked. It was great because they were, A, incredibly talented, B, Mm -hmm. incredibly flexible, and C, if I didn't understand it, and I'm a a control freak, but if I didn't understand it day one, I knew by the time I got that first film back, I have to really tie down everything. Mm -hmm. But it was a really cool process, and as much as I love and admire sheet timers and don't even understand what it is that they do... It's always been weirdly divorced from the process of animation yeah. which used to be about flipping pages and gut feeling and, mm-hmm. and the most that they would do in the area of sheet timing would be writing a chart on mm-hmm. a single drawing where you say okay I've got drawing five and I've got drawing 12 natural oh, drawing yeah yeah my animator needs to do two my, mm-hmm. my assistant animator needs to do two drawings between mm-hmm. these and here's where they go sheet timing is an even more abstract version of those mm-hmm. charts, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. So this is getting back to the old animation. In well,
0: it makes sense when you the animation wasn't done here. It was Overseas, you need the sheet timers right. to, to tell the animators over there, thousands of miles away, how many drawings for each thing. So because the, what they, do. they
1: don't even speak the language, yeah. and they don't necessarily understand the culture, so their it's sense of humor the, wouldn't match
0: it. Here yours. you have the animators doing that. Mm-hmm. They decide how many frames for this how many frames for that right so it, it was So a, this is back to that almost it is and the you animators, know, it's actually animating and, and timing his own animation right
1: yeah the animators do the timing as mm-hmm. as they go based as much as as they can on mm-hmm. the animatic you know, they, yeah. they have as yeah, much yeah. detail as I give them and we still have cultural problems and there are things that need to be described to them but as long as they're willing to do that second or third iteration, we zero mm-hmm. in. Um, and they really dug it because it gives them agency. You know, they're, they're not just machines who are following this crazy chart.
0: Yeah. They
1: actually get to have some feeling mm-hmm. in their work. And when they do that, they then start pulling along with you. They're members of the team. They're, mm-hmm. they're not just these weird jobbers. And... They do their best work, mm-hmm. and I, I would love to see more production head down that road where we're doing this kind of computer asset style of animation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's never going to work for hand drawn animation. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be, you know, something that needs to be done in, by people who speak the language of the material. Mm-hmm. I
0: think. So what are you doing? What did you do after that? What do you think of doing? no plans? So it's
1: just- while I was doing that and before I was doing that and after, I've been writing screenplays. I mm-hmm. um, have not sold any
0: screenplays. but For live action or car- for animation? For live
1: action. Also, uh, for animation, um, I've got no end of animated show pitches, and I bring them around town. Mm-hmm. I try to pitch them. No luck yet, but my fingers are crossed. Um, many of them are scripted shows, Mm -hmm. so I have written a pilot script or two for those, just in case someone asks for one. Uh, We also, Micah and I, took one of our screenplays called Duster, which is a period action movie. Mm -hmm. takes place in the 40s with... You did a comic book from that. We did. It's an American woman who is a crop duster while her husband is away at war, and she fights Nazis who are stuck in her hometown on their way to South America at the end of World War II in Europe. And we wrote this as a screenplay. And everyone who read it said, we love this screenplay, Mm -hmm. we're never going to make it. And we were like, wait, how do those two things work together? And they said, well, you know, a woman can't open an action movie. This is back in 2002, 2003. So in order to demonstrate that what we were doing is exactly what they do in all their animation, uh, their Mm -hmm. their, uh, action movies... We had it made into a graphic novel, so we designed it. We wrote it as a comic book, which is a different medium, similar to film but different. Mm -hmm. Had to create a new screenplay, a new script for it. We hired artists. We colored it. We I I did all of the lettering, so I'm writing all the special effects because I love comics. Yeah, Um, I did that. We made this really cool graphic novel, and now we can hand that out to people. And say, "Hey, here's this thing," and they say, "Wow, well, this would be great as a movie." Well, we just happen to have a screenplay right here—that's the yeah, dream yeah. scenario. So that was happening. I also did um, many years of, of occasional freelance work for SpongeBob comics. Mm. When Steve Hillenberg signed over the rights to SpongeBob to Nickelodeon, which is you know what happens when you make your pilot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he reserved the comic book rights for himself. Huh. which is a really clever thing to do. I, he had the same uh, agent who was representing him, or the business lawyer, entertainment lawyer, yeah, I know, right? that Craig Bartlett yeah.
0: uh-huh.
1: and... Um, what's his name? From The Simpsons. Matt Groening.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know um,
1: she was. Yeah. Well, Matt Groening mm-hmm. is, was Craig Bartlett's mm-hmm. brother-in-law, so they yep. shared this entertainment lawyer, and then I think probably what happened is Steve saw the deal coming for Spongebob and spoke to Craig, who was Mm -hmm. in the building. I'm just Mm -hmm. guessing that's what it was. You can ask Craig. And got that same name. So he ended up having the same kind of deal that they have. And Matt Groening had comic book rights pulled out because Matt Mm. Groening came out of comics. And I think he wanted to have his baby in that form. Steve did the same thing. So while he allowed Nickelodeon Magazine to do some comic books when there was a Nickelodeon magazine, when that magazine folded and Steve Mm. left Nickelodeon and was retired, essentially, he started making SpongeBob comics under Matt Groening's comic imprint (laughs) of, of Bongo comics. So they're doing distribution and they hired uh, Chris Duffy, who was the editor of the comic book section at Nickelodeon magazine, who we'd worked with on SpongeBob comics and Mm. Hey Arnold comics that I did. They hired Chris Duffy to come in and manage SpongeBob comics. And he knew all of these amazing comic book people, both from DC and and the Marvel superhero Mm -hmm. end of things, but also from the New York comic book art scene.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And he brought all of those people together to make SpongeBob comics. So he would have people like me. I would come in, I would write and draw or write and lay out a comic book, and then someone else would come in and draw on top of me, so I could get, um, you know, Mark Hempel, who had done these amazing art comics all through my mm-hmm. my you know college years and and into the present, finishing up a story uh-huh. that I laid out. And SpongeBob Comics is a total mixed bag. You never know what you're going to get. You pick up one issue. And the one thing you you can know for sure is that next to none of it is going to look like the TV show. Oh, yeah. Of Everyone yeah. uses their own style. Mm-hmm. And Steve allowed that to happen, and Chris Duffy made that happen. And it was a treat for me to work on it. And, you know, my style looks as much like the show as mm-hmm. anything. It doesn't look like the style guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um it was just cool to be able to do that and then to see other people's take on the material. Was, what a fantastic mm. thing that was. It's gone now. they folded it, but they made hundreds and hundreds of pages of oh, really? really amazing stuff. Oh. Some of which is available in, in book reprints. So anyway, what's interesting is, as a little kid, wanted to do animation, wanted to do comics, and I've gotten the chance to do you both did. of them professionally. Yeah. Um, for myself plus live action. And even while more than you thought you would. Yeah. Really. And, and even while, um, I've spent way too much of my time not working or not being paid, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just doing things like writing screenplays, which is great. One day I'll sell a screenplay and then everyone will say, what else have you got? And I'll
0: pull out
1: a steamer trunk full of work. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's been a, a cool career. You know, I was very lucky to do all the things that I wanted to do and to do it at a time when I could work on uh, Hey Arnold, Mm -hmm. a a great show, and SpongeBob, a classic show, and Phineas and Ferb, a great and challenging show. Um, You know, I've I've been able to do some really cool things. I'm just hoping that I get a chance to do my show. Yeah, of course. And that yeah, my then, show will yeah. be one of those mm-hmm. cool things. That people in 10 years will say,
0: ah, I was so lucky to work on Jay." Wouldn't that show. be cool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all this. Sorry I yammered so much. No, it's great. It'll be 10 parts. <laughs> 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 okay. Thanks again,
1: Jay. Just cut out the garbage. No, no, Just no. put in the good parts.
0: Well, if I cut out the garbage, there'll be Three minutes. Yeah. Okay. But no. three, good, three minutes <laughs> three of good hole. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Well, that's it uh, for my conversation with Jay Lander. Thanks to Jay for sharing with us his professional experience on shows like Hair Arnold, SpongeBob, and, uh, and Phineas and Ferb. Um, as well as explaining his point of view on, uh, on the more political aspect of our uh, animation business, which includes uh, uh, the big corporations and uh, the relationship with unions. Uh, as usual, head over, please, to the main site at cartoonlunch.com where you can download all the previous podcast episodes and the next one when they'll come, as well as videos, videos of the guests, uh, me interviewing the guests, And pictures, pictures of the crew on the shows we worked on and pictures of me and the guests. And please join us for our next episode. Thank you.